The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. Namaste and good evening to all of you. I'm going to continue tonight with the commentary to the fundamental Hatha Yogic and yogic text called the Gyaranda Samhita. We are deep into that text. It's a text of six parts, and we are already moving into the fifth lesson of it, into the fifth part. In our last conference, we analyzed the very special chapter number four, which is a very rare chapter in the yoga literature of India and which was talking about pratyahara or how to cut off from the external disturbance and how to be able to interiorize your attention towards the higher things in your being, in particular towards the higher self, towards the supreme self. Breaking the order established by Patanjali, according to whom Pratyahara would be the stage number five in an eight-step process. And before Pratyahara on level four, so lower than Pratyahara, before Pratyahara, you would have Pranayama. Gyaranda does it in a different way. Gyaranda has spoken in the lesson number four briefly but very powerfully about Pratyahara. And now in the lesson number five only, he comes to pranayama. By this, Gyaranda wants to show that for him, pranayama is a very advanced stage of practice. And here you have a fresh point of view of a great master of yoga who brings pranayama to its real value. As you are going to see, for about 35 shlokas, which is huge because the previous chapter had only 20, all in all, the whole chapter had 20, and in this one, for 34 shlokas, Geranda only describes the preparation for pranayama, the prerequisites for pranayama. He considers it such a powerful practice when it is done in the traditional yogic way, not just like some ventilation of the lungs, but when it is done the traditional way, you'll understand immediately what I'm talking about, then... He considers it a very potent practice. And he did not make this. He, there are some things here. You're going to say he should have put this in chapter number one. No, funny. Funny enough, he put them in chapter number five. When it comes to pranayama, he feels that now he should give some stern warnings and create, create some prerequisites. Because you can do some kriyas. You can do some asanas. It's not that they are without efficiency because they can heal <clears throat> a huge amount of diseases. They can do amazing things for you and they have effects which are psychological, mental and so on. And yet pranayama becomes so intensive. Pranayama is so strong that Geranda suddenly feels like, okay, now this is serious business. Now let me tell you a few more things. That's why the lesson five about pranayama or the control of the vital breath, prana, yama, the control of prana, 
sound as follows. I'm starting with the shloka number one. Now I shall explain to you the correct rules for practicing pranayama. By its practice, one becomes like a deity or a deva. When you read modern books of yoga, pranayama is a form of oxygenation of your lungs and tissues and something thereabout. Like with asanas, the materialists could um, hijack yoga, could uh, kind of hijack some meanings from yoga. I was about to use the word prostitute yoga and turn it into a gymnastics and fitness <coughs> by saying, oh, in asanas you are stretching uh, the tendons and ligaments, you are uh, stretching your joints uh, or folding them, you are aligning your limbs, uh, you are pressing on some parts of the body, you are modifying the blood circulation in some other parts of the body, you are pressing on some endocrine glands or nerve plexuses, and this is how we explain the asanas, which of course, as soon as you learn a bit of agama, you realize that this is bollocks to a large extent, because that's not what explains the functioning of asanas. Reducing the asanas just to plexuses and nerves and blood circulation is a childish statement, is a childish mistake, it's a childish simplification already. But with pranayama, pranayama is already more subtle because everybody who does pranayama, and either you say that there are eight types of pranayama or 50 types of pranayama, as some teachers say, then automatically everybody is sitting in a more or less cross-legged position, inhaling, doing some funny stuff, exhaling, and so on. And it's like, how much difference it is like, okay, what does the breathing do? The breathing is circulating your lymph. The breathing is bringing increased amounts of oxygen. The breathing is, you just find two, three very simple reasons, then you are flabbergasted because pranayama is way stronger than the asanas. It goes deeper. That's why you see the differences. In the chapter number four, he says pranayama is the one which eliminates the deformities or the defects of the body. And here he says, I'm now going to give you the correct rules for practicing pranayama. By its practice, one becomes like a god. Not like the God, but like a God, like a deity. I always, and in the text, in the translation, I use the word deity. The Sanskrit word deva uh, means, uh, I translate it always by deity, because the word God in English mixes up inappropriately with the word God with a capital G, which is the word for the monotheistic God. But the word God is used also for different deities, such as Zeus or Hermes or the likes of them, and there's nothing wrong with those, but they are not God with a capital G. They are not the top of the pyramid, Brahman from Vedanta. They are high, very high spirits with a very high power, and they abide in the Devachan in the world of the gods, and therefore to eliminate this English language misunderstanding, I prefer to call them deities because with a deity uh, you don't mix it up with the God. And nevertheless, Geranda suddenly has the big courage to say, if you do pranayama, you become like a God. It's not about oxygenation of tissues. 
It's not about some other minor things. He gives directly, you know, when he has to say a sentence about pranayama, he says, I'm going to teach you pranayama by which one can become like a deity, like a god. That's what ancient yogis thought about pranayama, and that's not coming from oxygenation of tissues. There must be, and there is, of course, a much different secret, and when you go through the levels two, three already of agama practice, you learn those secrets, and you learn what is hidden fundamentally behind the practice of pranayama. First, one should consider, in the shloka number two, he continues, first one should consider the following preliminary factors, like you don't just jump into pranayama, they are preliminary factors, suitable location and time, moderate light and nourishing food, purification of the energy channels or the nadis. Pranayama comes only after that. So first you must have the correct place, the correct time, the correct diet. Then you must purify the nadis. And only after that there comes pranayama. So there are quite a few preliminaries. What does Geranda have to say about location? He says this yoga, this yoga, kundalini laya, this yoga like agama, this yoga, the powerful physical yoga which contains energies and chakras, this yoga practice should not be attempted in a far off place, nor in a forest or jungle, nor in a royal city, he means the capital of a province, like a large city, a metropolis, not nor in the midst of crowds. If one does so, one will not get proper success. He will explain, so that's why I don't bother to explain it redundantly, but he gave four things. Like yoga should not be done in a far-off place, nor in a forest or a jungle, nor in a big city, nor in the middle of many, many people. And now he's going to explain in the shloka number four. In a distant land, one may either lose faith because of yoga not being known there. You go in a far-off land. It's a completely different culture, a completely different thing. And you are not you are losing a little bit of this morphogenetic field, some of this subconscious mind connection. When a yogi was in India, even if a little bit away from the city of his parents or the province of his childhood, he was still in the India of the yogis, and there was a morphogenetic field covering the area of India, today's Pakistan, Bangladesh, Nepal, Bhutan, parts of Tibet, because there, there were many yogis, and these people were creating a sort of bubble, a sort of a as agama is a bubble, because here there are yogis, many yogis per square kilometer in this area and in this campus. Exactly in the same way, in India and Tibet, there were many yogis, and they were creating a special atmosphere which supported each other. There was a huge bubble of yoga, and when going out of there, it doesn't work quite the same. For example, I want to call your attention on something to understand that the human mind and energy is a very strange place. For example, acupuncture does not work as well in the West as it works in China. In China, the great acupuncture doctors, they perform almost miracles with their needles. 
they place five, six needles in your body and you can have major surgery without feeling pain. You can even have a mirror and look how the doctors are cutting your stomach. And because you have five or six needles, not more, planted in your body, you don't feel any pain and you can stay like this for hours. The same feat does not work so easily when it's done in Paris or in New York. Why? Because Chinese medicine works strongest in China. It's based on also on something from here because it's subtle energies. It's a, it's a belief system attached to it. It's a faith. And that faith works best even geographically in a certain area. So the yogis say don't go too much far off. When you are in a yoga school, here the teacher and the advanced practitioners, they create a certain bubble of energy, an environment which favors you. And slowly, slowly, Kopangan becomes the yoga island of Thailand because more and more yoga schools are coming, more and more yoga practitioners are coming, more and more years of intense yoga are passing, and the place gets charged up. There is an energy which stays because of all the yang spirals and meditations and retreats and all the things which are being done. There is a specific field of energy. That's why it's very interesting to see that Geranda knows this. He says, if you go in a distant land, one may either lose faith because of yoga not being known there, or be without protection. You go out of India, in, the, in, the, in India the yogis were enjoying a certain social status, like they were left alone to do their yoga. You are going, for example, from India to Afghanistan, where the majority population might be Islamic, they might even stone you to death because you are a heathen and what the heck are you doing in our country? So there is also this issue which you have to meditate carefully. Like why does a great master like Geranda worry about protection? Is he paranoid? He seems to be a very high level teacher and he definitely doesn't have too many psychological flaws not to mention an elementary and quite visible one, like being slightly paranoid about things. And yet Geranda simply says, if you go beyond a certain place, you might simply be in danger, internal danger, because your mind might be not strong enough. Remember that this is a manual in which he speaks to his pupil, who is allegedly pretty much of a beginner. So he says, if you, Chanda Kapali, my disciple, go somewhere, you might lose your aspiration, you might lose your direction, you might lose your centeredness in yoga. That's why it's as long as you are not strong enough, you shouldn't go far away. I am very, very far away from the places where I have lived, and I'm also not in India right now. But this energy field and this bubble can be created at my level. I can carry it with me. Chanda Kapali, Yaranda felt like, don't go too far away, don't stretch it, don't push it, don't exaggerate, because either you may lose faith, how delicate that is. Many people say, I come back to Agama once every year to recharge my batteries of faith until I can take this lighthouse with me and become like a light beacon for other people for the rest of my life, wherever I am, because I'm plugged directly to the mains and I don't need a battery. I don't have a battery which discharges because I can connect directly to the network. 
but before that comes it's a known thing in spirituality that if you go away your battery may discharge after a while and you need to recharge it you may lose self-confidence you may lose confidence in your practice you may lose faith and Geranda also adds you also might be without protection if you really go in a far far away land where the cultural norms and everything religious and so on they can be way too different from what you do in a forest there may be danger or no food how down to earth Geranda is he's a great master he says you are going to become like a god if you do pranayama but he also says you go in a forest there may be danger it's a logical thing like I don't know if you have paranormal powers which allow you to keep the tigers at bay you know so that they won't attack you so there is a simple in the Indian jungle there is a danger there's nothing to be said about that and uh, he said and or there might be no food you live 30 kilometers from everybody else the yogis in India like the Buddhist monks in Thailand they earned their daily bread by begging because they were not farmers they didn't have a job and they wanted to consecrate all their time to the spiritual practice to the spiritual career and it was an accepted social norm that spiritual seekers exceptionally can beg for their food and the normal citizens were happy to give them some food nothing exaggerate just some food some basic food and people even considered that they would make merit that they would produce spiritual merit by doing this so people were keen on feeding yogis monks and other things but if you live 30 kilometers from everybody else then you are bound to just eat some bananas in the jungle if there are banana trees in that place or something because there will be no realistic way no like simply Geranda wants to be realistic he's such a great master but I like because he has this precision of small things which shows that he has been living the spiritual life indeed so he says uh, in a forest there may be danger or no food and in the midst of people either a big city or in the midst of crowds as he said before there is a danger of exposure by the curious and distraction due to publicity like you no know, you start doing yoga in front of your suburban house and then the newspapers they take photos of you and you become the yogi from Baltimore and whatever you know it's like what is that just inflation of the ego you becoming popular people give you cheap publicity then a newspaper will want to take an interview from you then you are exposed by curious people who want to come to your house and say Kilroy was here or you know just put some graffiti on your house that they know you or whatever you know curious people wasting their time like the hippies in the 60s who were trying to phone to Kathmandu or to India to just connect with Dalai Lama and tell him hi you're a great guy my name is Mike I'm from New York we really like you it's like if you'd be Dalai Lama would you be happy to have 300 telephone calls like this from 300 idiots that just have a telephone and money you know it's like doesn't it ruin your life completely instead of you translating a traditional text or something you have to answer to the phone calls of jumbixes like this you know that you just so therefore you know yogis don't need curious people around them all this bunch of curious who just want to 
harass you. Oh, how do you do that? Oh, tell me about this. No, but you see that they are not intending to do it. They are not real pupils. They will not go anywhere. And you just stay and waste your life. No, that's why it's very obvious when you read this to see that all these Babas from India who stay on the shores of the Ganga in Rishikesh and they just wait for young naive tourists to take a photo with them and smoke a chillum. These are not yogis because the spirit of yoga is this one which Garanda shows. Garanda simply says run away from the mobs and from the crowd. One of my gurus who advised me, Shankar Baba, who advised me to put the name Agama to this school, he is the author of that spiritual council. He was living just opposite the Ganges to the place where, to the ashram where I live, in Rishikesh. And in the moment when they started building a condo building behind him, he simply said, now this place has become a commercial town. It used to be Rishikesh, a place of pilgrimage, and the place of the yogis, the capital of yoga. Now it's becoming a condo place where rich Indian people buy themselves holiday apartments or something like this. So one night, he packed all his stuff, which was very, very little. He lived in a house which was way smaller than my dais. The surface of my dais is probably double than the house of this guru. He lived in a hut, almost a dog house size. And he packed up everything he had, and he disappeared. And then he let us know that he had moved to Deoprayag, 60 kilometers up the Ganges from Rishikesh because there the civilization and the Kondo culture had not reached yet there. It was more up the river in the Himalayas, more uh, uh, countryside place, less of a touristy public place. So here he says in the midst of the people there is danger of exposure by the curious. Believe me, the curious inspired by some very weird entities which are trying to stop your practice, the curious can be manipulated on a 24-7 basis telepathically by some entities to nag you and disturb you non-stop so that one, at some point it's 11 o'clock in the evening and you didn't have five minutes to do your practice. You constantly had to talk to the curious. Geranda knows it very, very well. Do not be exposed to the many curious people and distraction due to publicity. Yogis, first of all, have to fulfill that. If you are like Swami Shivananda and you fulfilled your spiritual goal, then publicity becomes a positive thing because you can attract pupil, pupils to educate them. As Buddha, the publicity is okay because it can't spoil your nirvana anymore. But before you reach nirvana properly, curious, curiosity, curious people and publicity, the yogis did not want any of this. They wanted to stay very much away from this. Therefore, he says, let one avoid those three. Faraway lands where the culture may be different, too far in the forest, too much isolation with no possibilities for food or other things, and too much crowds or big cities with exposure to curious people or publicity. Five, he continues. So he gives what would be a good place for a yogi to live, but you see he comes with it only in chapter five. Like it, if you reach to here, 
you really want to do yoga. You really are becoming advanced. You are not just a bypasser who just dabbled in yoga for three months and then changed his mind and wanted to do something else. You are really into it. And he says, in a good country with a king that is righteous. This is, he uses the word dharma raja. It would be interesting for most of you to know that in a mutilation of Sanskrit, because they don't use Sanskrit, I forgot exactly how you publish, how you pronounce it, because usually Buddhist ancient texts are more of a Pali, Nepalese type of dialect, but the very king of Thailand we, is called by the people of Thailand Dharma Raja, which means a king that is not a selfish bastard, a king that believes in Dharma and obeys the Dharma, a king that lives according to the Dharma, according, so it means a righteous king, a good king. So he says in a good country, good country, you know, in Cambodia, when the killing fields time came, when the communists took over, nine million Cambodians killed three millions, or three million Cambodians killed one million in their own ranks. No, I can understand that somebody makes a war and kills a million people from the other people's nation. I cannot accept it as a yogi and as a person preaching ahimsa, but at least if I go in Manipura, I can understand it that there is a conflict and you fight with a nation, you want to exterminate them as much as possible. Why would people kill people out of their own country, out of their own fellow men? So what's a good country? Look at the history of the world. There are many, many countries where atrocities happen. Lots of atrocities happen. There are countries where the people in that country did not produce too many atrocities. Study. Not all the countries of this earth are equal from this standpoint. The history of the different countries is different. Great Britain had an empire and still discreetly has most of it in which the sun was never setting. The question is, what was the prize for creating such a huge empire? Like, was this a good country or not so good? Yeah. The Chinese made a cultural revolution in which they killed 50 to 100 million people of their own people. Is that a good country? I am very sure that Geranda would say, don't go there. Those people have showed their metal already. Those people, they showed what they are made of, and it's just a matter of time before they are going to do it again. It's, it's that kind of frequency in that place. So he says, in a good country, he's not judgmental. He knows very clearly not all are good. In a good country... With a king that is righteous, because the country can be good, but because of some karmic period in the life of that country, the king can be a disaster and take very disastrous measures. So with a king that is religious, like in India, Ashoka. Ashoka was the first Dharmaraja, the first Buddhist king of India, and he came up with morality, ethics, at a time when in India those were very, very bad, very, very flimsy. Until today, the Indian nation 
with the agreement of Mahatma Gandhi and other great yogis, they have placed on the flag of India, on the national flag of India, the Ashoka Chakra, the wheel of Ashoka, in which he claims a Dharma Raja. He claims a sort of a Dharmic state, a government which needs to be, at least to a certain extent, spiritual. So, see, this is the tragedy of the so-called Western democracies. The first thing which the conspirators did when they created the French Revolution and 15 years before of that when they created the United States of America was to separate the state from the religion so that the leader of the state, which would be then called the president, is not a Dharma Raja, is not a person like even if a person is um, too religious, it may raise some issues. And thus, uh, in a good country, see, he thinks about a lot of things. With a king, if which is righteous, what if the king changes? Then pack and go. It's as simple as that. Move to some other place. Whether in, in India, of course, the kings were many, because a king was usually the ruler of a small city-state, not a huge province or thing like today. Because in those days, there was no communication, transportation, and kings were limited to a certain extent in their rulership. So he said in a good country, with a king, a king that is righteous, Dharma Raja, where food and alms are easily available, because if you go to a place where there is a drought and a famine, to a place that is periodically plagued by hunger, then when people are hungry, as dharmic as the king is and as nice, as, as good as the country is, people are becoming beasts. When they have to defend their children, when they have to protect their lives, and when they did not eat for three weeks, then it doesn't matter. And you, as a yogi, you'll be the first to get the brunt of that. And that's why Garanda is realistic. He says it has to be a good country, known from history, seen from what you know about it. It has to be where a king is spiritual. It has to be where food and alms are available so that people will be inclined to generosity and they won't. Your life should not become a chase for food, a fight for survival, because you are missing the whole point of yoga if you are struggling every day for your daily bread. Your daily bread should come almost automatically without you worrying too much. So in a country where food and alms are easily available, where there is no disturbance or unrest, and he means specifically if there is no revolution, like if there is a revolution, go away for a while or forever from that place. Remember, it was Gurdjieff, I think, who said it very clearly in one of his books, that in, if in a country there is revolution, unrest, or social disturbance, demonic forces will make that the most evolved spiritual people will be the first ones to take a bullet. The stray bullet will hit exactly the best person in the city because since it, it seems it's a bit random, for the demons it's not random because the demons see the people and every person has a number over their head which shows their value. And 
if the demons take out Albert Einstein or Albert Schweitzer, they produce a way bigger deterioration to the society if they take out a beggar who is a drunk and a drug addict. The society, if the society will benefit actually if the drunk drug addict is taken out of the physical world because the society won't have to carry that person on their shoulders and their negative energies. But if you take out a peace master, if you take out Rumi, if you take out Francis of Assisi, then the society goes down a lot. And don't think that the invisible forces don't know that. And when the opportunity arises, if they can at all costs, they are going to produce some mayhem. Gurdjieff, who was very manipuristic in these ways, he said always when there is revolution or disturbance, the best people are the ones to be eliminated first. I had a yoga teacher who was present during this upheaval in Eastern Europe, in Romania, when Ceausescu, the tyrant, was taken out, and he did not want to get out. He was put in a establishment by the police and they gave him the freedom and he didn't take the freedom for six days until the turmoil on the streets was over he never although he was living in miserable conditions he never wanted to come to Bucharest to the capital during the turmoil because he knew this subtle law and because of this he simply said I I cannot risk my life going in a chaos like this. Geranda also knows something about this because he says about a good country, a good king, food and alms easily available and when the, where there is no disturbance, no unrest of any kind. You are a yogi, you don't need to involve yourself into that. Swami Vivekananda tells us the story from the 19th century where there was a Muslim riot in India during the British rule there was British rule in that century already and there was a Muslim an Islamic riot and during that riot an idiot maddened with fury God knows maybe somebody had raped his wife or killed his child or whatever he just ran through the forest howling like a wolf and found a Baba found a yogi a sadhu and stabbed him to death the sadhu had nothing to do with anything the people in the society were doing the sadhu was a hermit looking for his peace and salvation. But this idiot, guided by a demon, no doubt, he just went and stabbed the holy man you know, to death. That's what Gurdjieff says. So when there is unrest, if you become a highly valued spiritual being, remember that in hell there is a tag on your head. There is a price on your head. And that's why spiritual people live in rather different ways than the ignorant. There are many people who tell me, Swami, I don't even want to hear this because then I'll have to live my life in a different way. Yes, that's my purpose. That's why I'm here. And I hope that's why you came here. If you want to come to me and then go home and live your life in the same way, it means I am just wasting my vocal strings for nothing. I should just sit and relax or meditate because I'm talking precisely because I want to take you out of your state of ignorance and spiritual sleep and make you change your life. So yes, there is a challenge to it. And when you are a spiritual person, something is happening. Exactly as in the very first 
was it Star Wars when Luke Skywalker meets with his first teacher, no, and his first, and then in the time when this meets, the bad guys are meeting and they are talking with each other, and the Emperor tells to Darth Vader or the other way around, we have a new enemy. There is a great disturbance in the Force. And then they say, Luke Skywalker must not become a Jedi. Like, stop him before he finishes his training, because he finishes his training, he becomes a beacon of light, and he's too dangerous. One person can change the history of a whole country. And you don't, people don't know it, because people are in a state of ignorance, of spiritual ignorance. But the spirits in the invisible world, even if they are not high spirits, they know it. They have a vantage point which allows them to see the human existence, society, the laws of the nature much better than we do. And that's why there are many laws which apply to this. And that's why uh, even this is a law. Yes, you didn't know and often people don't realize. Any one of you wants to join the army of God, the other army is going to be on your heels for the rest of your life and forever and ever. People, there was a jealous king, an angry king, who several times tried to assassinate Buddha, Gautama Buddha. Who would want to assassinate Buddha? Buddha seems to be such a placid, peaceful philosopher and so on. At least Jesus was a raving Jew who was, you know, fiery and brimstone and all that. And he was condemning people and calling them snakes, vipers, wolves in a sheepskin and all that. And, you know, exposing them and raving at them. But Buddha was not. Buddha was a very peaceful teacher. And still there was a king who several times tried to assassinate him. Why? It was not the king. The mind of the king was poisoned by the demons. The fault of the king was that he smoked too much marijuana or whatever he did. And he was susceptible to the influence of the demons. He was like a glove ready to be penetrated by the proper hand in that glove. He was not yang enough and he was not himself enough. He was just a wet dish rag. He was just a, a douchebag. And because he was a douchebag, he was liable to be possessed by negative entities as many people who use different drugs, people who are ridden by terrible vices and who are, because of this, susceptible to be possessed. So uh, I will not insist with demonology, but remember that even Buddha was persecuted. In Kali Yuga, even Buddha is persecuted. Others and others have been almost all the time. Milarepa in Tibet was poisoned. Mirabai in India was poisoned. And the list could continue. You know, it's like, what the heck is happening on the face of this earth? That's what's happening. So spirituality is not just a passive game. It's a game with consequences. And in case your stomach cannot take it, go home and try again in the next life. But at some point, you have to make an option. Like Jesus said, I came to separate the wheat from the weeds. Who is not with me is against me. 
there is no middle position in this. There is one side of the seesaw and the other side of the seesaw. And you have to choose on which side of that seesaw you are. That's why that is not a monistic way, that's a dualistic way of seeing things. But in this world where 99.9999% of the things which happen are dualistic, then that's the way to see the world. The world is polarized in its own way. And that's why you can see that Geranda between the lines discreetly he knows. He says, don't go where there is a unrest or disturbance. And in that place, which fulfills these four conditions, good country, good king, food easily available, and no unrest, no social unrest, one should erect a small hut surrounded by an enclosure. Like that's the yogic standard. It's one of the very few texts which goes in such details. Other mention things about space and time, conditions, the seasons, and so on. But Geranda really, I can see that he has this down-to-earth philosophy. And he goes to even the tiniest details. He says, go in a place, build yourself a small hut with an enclosure around so that you are not disturbed. Like there should be a fence around. Delimitate a small yard around your house, not directly the house to the road open. The sound, the, the house, even surrounded by an enclosure. Inside the enclosure, let him build a well or a tank for water. It's almost like a city subjected to besiege, uh, to, to a siege, you know. It's like a fortress, like you should have your own source of water in your yard. He sounds a bit paranoid, you know, like God knows what can happen. No, the source of water should not be outside of your house. It should be in your yard there. You should have the necessary things for you. The cottage should be neither too high nor too low, and it should be free from insects. In tropical lands, the bugs are the one of the biggest pains. You try to meditate, you try to do your asanas, whatever you try to do. As always, ants and all sorts of things, and ants are the least of them. They are the most pernicious and the most present. But of course, there are much, much worse things, like such as centipedes and others and others, which can make, and flies which sit on you during meditation, and they didn't have much mosquito netting in those days and so on, and yogis were poor and they could not afford mosquito netting anyway. So therefore, he simply says, make a hut, make a place, and try to find a way to make it free of insects. He actually gives some crazy advice a bit later uh, about this. So neither too high nor too low. He doesn't mean about building two-story villas or something like this. Something moderate, not too low so you don't have to crawl like a dog in your own house. You can do your tree pose maybe or whatever you do. So it should be of reasonable size and it should be free from insects. Seven, the hut should be plastered with cow dung against insects. In such secluded place should one practice pranayama. I have seen that in Eastern Europe at least, people in the countryside in communist times they were making adobe, and the adobe which were making for plastering and building houses, which contained straw in it, was often mixed. It was clay with water, with, with uh, straw, and mixed with a certain amount of cow dung as a plaster, as a sort of a glue that kept things together. So it's used in the construction technology of adobe and others. And here, Geranda says against insects, because apparently adobe 
the cow dung has some sterilizing effect. It, pro it contains in it some sterilizing things, substances, and thus the insects don't like it, and they are going to stay away from the walls and therefore from your habitation. So that was the crazy advice. Build yourself in the right place. Build yourself a small hut with enclosure, with a water well or something. Put some cow dung on your walls and plaster them tight and stay in a place without insects, without disturbance. This is your little palace and from here your yoga practice can proceed. Now he's going to give an even more intricate one. I'm going to go rather quick over this one. Only two conclusions are really important from this one. Time. This yoga, this yoga, he says, so again, this type of yoga, must not be started in these four seasons, Hemanta, Shishira, Grishma, and Varsha. Otherwise, the practice may cause sickness. So he says, if you start your yoga practice, start, because then you do it for 20 years. But if you start it at the wrong time, in the beginning, because you are a beginner and because you don't have big concentration of the mind and you don't control the energies of your body well, if you happen to do it in the wrong climate, you will not feel good. Like one of these ones is the summer, the Indian summer. I'm going to not insist on these names because he comes obsessively onto them in the next six or seven shlokas, because he wants to make the point crystal clear. And these are four of the six Indian seasons. In India, the year could be divided in three or four, and or it could be divided in six. You could have four seasons of three months each. In Thailand, you have three seasons of four months each, because the climate is not like in India. This is a different geographical place. And if Geranda would have lived in Thailand, he would have written it in a different way. But this is written from the standpoint of the Indians who are having four seasons of three months each like in Europe or a more elaborate system of six seasons of two months each, obviously, because the year has to be of 12 months in, in total. And thus, they run according to that. Because it's going to be clarified in a second what those are, I don't want to spoil it in advance, so I'm just simply saying, be careful that he says there are four seasons, and you'll be able to know which those are, where he says, as a beginner, starting yoga there might produce a disturbance. Let's say, for example, you are a very pitta dosha person. Your pitta is so big that your skin is yellow, you have a lot of bile production in your body, and that's why your skin is yellowish and you have your eyes bloodshot, red eyes, red shot eyes are a sign of disturbed pitta in the body. I could give you others, but I hope you are listening to the Agama courses, you are following Agama courses, and there you have much more teachings about this. That's a short thing here. You are a pitta person, your pitta may be a bit disturbed, which means out of control, and on top of the whole thing, you are starting yoga practice right when the heat of the summer is strongest. Here in Thailand, it would mean you are starting yoga, let's say, on the 20th of March, because that's the hottest time of the year, 20 March to 15th of April. It's really hot, and those of you who were here this year, you remember 
that, that today, nowadays, sometimes we have very hot days. But then the next night or the next morning there comes a rain and cools everything down. We didn't have that privilege from the 15th of January to the 15th of April. Like there was no rain and then the temperature only got up, 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 up. In the same way in India, there exists a summer depending on the monsoon season of each part of India. And that's why he, I'm saying this. Yaranda says, you start practicing yoga, you start doing a lot of Udhyana Bandhas and Nauli, you start doing a lot of Trataka, and you are a Pitta person with too much Pitta, and it's summertime. That, that can cause disease instead of happiness and health. So there is an art. Of, when you have done yoga for 10 years, you will know how to deal with it, because as soon as something happens, you feel it, and you take measures. You do shitali pranayama or you spend one hour per day in a water pool or in a water pond or in the sea. You take some countermeasures because you are advanced in yoga and sensitive. But when you are a beginner, you will just go head forward like a cow in a pharmacy, you know, without being careful about what's happening because you are not aware or very sensitive and then things can happen. So it's very much about the beginning of the yoga practice. Here in Agama, we have created the system of teaching in such a way that people can start it and they are under the surveillance of teachers. And if any one of you starts having any disturbance or health problems, people come and ask the teacher or they go to Amrita to the healing center and they can deal with these things very easily. But Geranda here gives a general advice and this general advice is wonderful. So he says on Shloka 9, it is said that the practice of this yoga must be commenced by a beginner in Vasanta and Sharada. One of them means spring, just you'll see immediately. So one of them is Indian spring and one of them is autumn. The Indian, the, the spring and the autumn, remember this is by Indian climate. In Europe it will be slightly different. In Australia it would be totally reversed. But that's basically what Geranda tells, and he will insist with details. That's the main idea. The best time to start yoga is in September or in March or something like this, in the spring months or in the autumn months. I, for example, when I had a yoga school in Denmark, I always took efforts to do this, to start all the autumn yoga courses in September and to start all the spring yoga courses in late February or March. And it was not very convenient from the standpoint of society, business, all sorts of things. And people kept asking me, Swami, I was not called Swami at that time, but they asked me anyway, why are we doing, why don't you go by the rules of the rest of the society and you have these peculiar dates of start? because the holidays were in July and the school was starting on the 15th of August in Denmark. And it would have been good to start yoga courses in August. But because I had read the Geranda Samhita, I simply said, no, you know what? Although we are not in India, this refers to some cosmic energies present there. And those cosmic energies, if you can catch them, they would be best in spring or in autumn. Here in Agama, people are starting yoga, literally speaking, people are starting yoga every month. Not only every month, every day. 
it's a different society, a different place. So my consecration, the way we consecrate these courses is different and the protection of Shiva for these courses is different because we cannot go by this pattern of Geranda who lived there. And that's why uh, remember that of course these rules can be bent when you know exactly what you are doing and what is the, the way to proceed. And then he starts explaining. The seasons can be described in Shloka 10. The seasons can be described in two ways. In the first way, there are six seasons of two months each, starting with the month of Chaitra and finishing with Palguna. I'm going to get back to those. And you will not remember 12 Sanskrit names anyway. I don't remember the Sanskrit names of the months except through their association with astrological signs. So that's how I do it. And that's why um, he simply gives a month in the... So the seasons are six seasons of two months, starting with Chaitra and finishing with Palguna. In the second way, we speak about three larger seasons of four months each, starting with Magha and ending with Palguna. That's exactly the Thai system, where there is a rainy season, a hot season and a cold season. That's what it is in Thailand. And the king or the representative of the king these days is dressing the Emerald Buddha from Bangkok in three sets of clothes. The Emerald Buddha, the protector of the Thai nation in the Buddhist faith, has three sets of clothes. One more summary for the hot season where he's almost naked. One thick for the cold season. I don't understand why they call it the cold season because I have not been cold in the last 12 years since I'm in Thailand. So I don't know what they are talking about, but apparently they do. One year, there was a temperature of 12 degrees somewhere in North Thailand and the cows started dying on the fields and the king decreed or the prime minister decreed national emergency. People are not used. The climate is a very relative thing. In Greenland, when it's 12 degrees, the Eskimos are coming out naked and start dancing in the sunshine because 12 degrees in Greenland is canicular heat probably. You know? But in Thailand, it's national emergency and the cows are dying on the fields. So it's all very relative. And thus, there is a cold season, a hot season, and a rainy season. We are not here. Geranda is not going to deal with the second system. The second system is sometimes used, but they love the first system with two months each because that's so very precise. According to the first system, Vasanta or spring, which if you remember was one, one of the good times to start, Vasanta or spring consists of Chaitra, which is Aries, and Vaishaka, which is Taurus. So now you understand. The Vasanta season of the spring corresponds astrologically to the Aries and the Taurus. You are going to say according to uh, Indian astrology? No, funnily, the Indians also have a solar astrology and according to that one, it is there. So actually, these months are March, April, April, May. Girishma or summer I'm sorry, Grishma or summer, which is, as I told you, I, I'm not even familiar with the names of the seasons and the months in Hindi. 
but of course I am very uh, happy to understand them as astrological signs because those I know when they start and when they end. So Grishma or summer, which was one of the forbidden seasons, consists of Jieshta, Gemini, and Ashada, Cancer. So you know, I hope, where those are. Cancer ends at 20th of July. Varsha, the rainy season, which is a, again one of the forbidden ones. Varsha, the rainy, is the so-called rainy season, because in most of India, that's when the monsoon is hitting. Not the same in Thailand, by the way. So the, the Varsha, the rainy season, of Shravana, the Leo, and Bhadrapada, or the Virgo, which goes until 20th of September. Sharada, which is the second good one, the second recommended one, or autumn, is consisting of Ashvina, which is Libra, and Kartika, or the Scorpio. So that's the time, 20th of September and on for two months. Hemanta, or winter, which is again one of the not-so-recommended ones of, Agra of Agrahania, also called Mahashirsha, and corresponding to the Margashirsha, corresponding to Sagittarius, and Pausha, or Capricorn. And finally, the Shishira, the cold one, which is again one of the bad ones, consists of Magha, Aquarius, and Palguna, the Pisces. So Chaitra, Arius, Palguna, it said the 12 months starting from Chaitra and ending with Palguna, or otherwise said starting with Arius and finishing with Pisces, which every astrologer knows. The first astrological sign till the last, A to Z, from beginning till end. Three, but according to the subjective experience expressed here by the word Anubhava, Vasanta or spring is experienced from Magha, Aquarius, till Vaishaka or Taurus. So here there is a very beautiful thing in which uh, basically they say, I just am going to make it very short, it's a theory which you will not benefit too much from listening about it in this satsangs. And I'm, those of you who will want to make research in Indian calendars and so on, you can go and study deeper into this. I just want you to understand what's meant here. And it's a very little importance for the yoga practice. But it's an interesting thing because it says that there is an, a subjective experience of the seasons. And in India, the spring is not only from Arias from the 20th of March, but it is experienced from Magha from the onset of Aquarius, which is actually about 20th of January. After 20th of January, in India, but India is a very big land, and it's one thing in the Himalayas and another thing in Kanyakumaram, in the lower end of India, in the lower tip of India near Sri Lanka. So India is a subcontinent. That's why this is valid for the place where Geranda lived his life. And every part of India has a slightly different climate. But in that place, some spring already showed up around the 20th of um, January, and it went on until Taurus. So he basically says the energy of a season starts before the season started. And the same thing is a little bit in astrology, but I don't need to go there, that the energy of a next astrological sign is stronger than the energy of the past astrological sign because the past is old and tired and worn out while the next one is fresh and full of energy. 
like a newborn baby and just waiting to be born. And thus the energy is not going exactly with the calendar. The energy is a little bit, uh, uh, how to say, it's shifted. It, there's a gap, there is a sort of a glitch between the actual energy in the invisible worlds and thus the subjective feeling and the actual calendar where you take it strictly like that. For example, uh, the astronomical spring is on the spring equinox, the 21st of March. But spring is celebrated in many countries, even in Europe, around the 1st of March or the 8th of March or thereabout. Because spring already is felt quite strong in early March and you don't have to wait until the spring equinox to say now it's really astronomically spring. Spring is in the air already. And thus, he simply says, according to the subjective experience, Vasanta or spring is expressed from earlier. And now you are going to get overwhelmed because thus he does the same for all the seasons. And he's going to use the Sanskrit name. And you are just going to get dizzy. It's very clear for each one of them, the symptoms start one or two months earlier. So he says, Girishma or summer from Chaitra Aries till Ashada or Cancer. And Varsha or the rainy season from Ashada, Cancer till Ashvina or Libra. Sharada or the autumn starts from Bhadra, Virgo, 20th of August about. It's already a bit wind, uh, autumn, you know, the some fruits are, autumn fruits are there already. Till Marga Shirsha or Sagittarius. Hemanta or winter is felt subjectively from Kartika, the Scorpio, to Magha, Aquarius. And finally, Shishira, the cold season, from Marga Shishira or Agrahanya Sagittarius to Palguna or Pisces. If you'll want, you can have this written. I'm going to have this uh, released in uh, text format as well after I finish this series of commentaries to the text. And then feel free to take a calendar and put the signs there to see what he's talking about. It's not really, really important because what he's trying to tell to Chandakapali, his disciple, is that there are times where it's better to start the practice. Like if you are a yogi living in a hut in India and your teacher taught you pranayama, you can say, I'm going to start the tapas of pranayama on the 20th of March. When the Aryas is starting, I'm going to take a two-month pranayama tapas and then I might go on the whole year or something. No, like it's auspicious. Giranda says that time you have the good space. Here is a recommendation about good time. If one, and he concludes in the Shloka 15 by actually saying the only thing that you need to fully remember from all this time thing. If one starts this practice of yoga in Vasanta or spring, which according to them means Aries Taurus, or Sharada or autumn, which for them means Libra Scorpio, then success is reached with ease and without trouble. Remember that one of them means at the spring equinox and the other one of them means at the autumn equinox. At the equinoxes, it's best to start intense tapas and practice. That's also because there are some hiatuses there and many other things are there. And in our yoga school, we honor solstices and equinoxes quite a bit precisely because they are good moments. Again, in Europe, the statements of Geranda would not be 100% valid. In Thailand, 
the statements of Geranda would not be entirely valid because rainy season, cold season, other things, they can happen one, two, three months different from India. And thus, somebody might write a Thai Geranda Samhita for this purpose. But that has not been the case. So that's why we just, it's just interesting for you to have the idea that Geranda considers some periods of time stronger than the others for starting practice. Not for doing practice, because you are supposed to do it the rest of your life. For starting. The start is important, not uh, all of it. Because then you become a pro and you do it. And of course you can take measures, as I said. Finally, he has a long paragraph here about diet, which again will take little for me to go. It's important for you again to see the gist of it, to, to take the essence of it, like uh, not Patanjali, but Geranda says that, of course, when you do pranayama, which is supposed to make you into a god, then pranayama is a bit pretentious. It's high maintenance. It's demanding. Like you have to be a bit careful because you are dealing with a powerful instrument that empowers you a lot, but uh, it's a powerful tool, and with powerful tools you have to deal carefully, like with dynamite handle with care. And he says on the shloka number 16, he who practices this yoga without also controlling his diet, so he said be in the right place, use the right time, and he says without also controlling your diet may incur various diseases and will not attain success or siddhi. Now, if you are doing five hours of pranayama per day and your diet consists of beefsteak with uh, sauce uh, de Dijon moutard or something like this, you're going to kill yourself. You are running your car straight into a wall because pranayama cannot accept too many impurities and weird things in the body. And thus, one has to be disciplined. It's like one is training for a very powerful thing and one has to be really, really fit for it. So he simply says, one may incur various diseases. If you eat crap and do a lot of pranayama, you might have even diseases, develop diseases, and one will not attain success. The success is marked by the Sanskrit word siddhi. And as I said in previous lectures, but for the sake of you who didn't hear my previous commentaries to the Geranda Samhita, the word siddhi is an ambivalent word used on purpose by Geranda because it can mean paranormal powers, attaining paranormal powers, such as starting levitating in midair or something, or it can also mean spiritual perfection, which means using the yoga practice exclusively for some higher states of consciousness. Both can be designated by the word siddhi, and which means that Geranda loved the ambiguity because then he could shoot two birds with one stone. He says, then one will not reach this nor that. You will not reach either of them. But the sentence becomes shorter and more comfortable, more rich in meanings, but more comfortable. 17, the yogin should eat a food prepared from rice, barley flour, wheat flour, 
mango beans. That's not mung beans. It's mango is a dark form, almost like lentils, from India. Masha beans. It's said to be a sort of broad beans. But now we are going into a huge list. And believe me, I don't know what all the plants and spices quoted on this list are. They are quoted in the professional translations with Latin names, with Sanskrit names. So if any one of you is a botanist or really interested into this, please take it into detail. It's my intention that when this will be over and I will have it for the school published in a brochure format, there there will be all the Latin names and all. In this paragraph, there will be lots of footnotes or parentheses with all the Latin names and Hindi names so that those of you who want to scrupulously follow some of the words of Garanda or at least to get more uh, of a feeling of what he says, you can go there. So he says the first thing, which is the best, the most recommended, he said rice, barley flour, wheat flour, mango beans, masha beans, grams, which is most often translated by Indian authors as chickpeas. And he says in the end, this thing, not so many, they must be clean and free from husks. So... Funnily enough, he recommends even the rice and the others without husk. Rather light type of food. Seven, uh, that was 17. 18. Also, one can consume. So these are not the best. The first one said the yogin should eat a food prepared. Like those were the primary items. I have been in India in poor ashrams and the people were eating khichari. A mixture of rice and dal. Rice and lentils and when once a year somebody brought them some butter they could make some uh, some sabji some vegetables with sauce with a spicy sauce or they could have some butter cookies and then those were like 10 days per year that was carnival but in the rest of the year they ate a very modest and simple food made of rice and lentils rice and beans which is exactly in this list, like Geranda knows what he's talking. That's how the yogis were two centuries ago and more when India was still a rural land, not sophisticated with so many other things and so on. So, and also on this list, one can consume patola cucumber, which is a small Indian cucumber, the fruit of the bread tree called in Sanskrit panasha, Taro, which are a form of these sweet potatoes. Kakola, which is a sort of berries. Jujube, called shuka shaka in uh, Sanskrit. The bondak nut. Heck if I know what the bondak nut is. The long cucumbers called karkati. You see them in Thailand sometimes. Plantain bananas, the bananas of the plantain trees. Figs, kantaka fruits. Unripe plantain stems unripe plantain bananas, plantain stems and roots, brinjal, which is the Indian eggplant, the smaller one, as well as the roots and the fruits of various medical plants. Like he gives him free for all these Ayurvedic things which are on the market. And also, shloka 20, and also leafy green vegetables of the five types, aloe, holy basil, small cucumber, the leaves of it, not the cucumber. These are the leafy vegetables. Vastuka and Brahmi, 
which brachmi is a more known vegetable, but vastuka is really cryptical. There is a Latin name for it, and that's it. There, there are some attempts to translate them in English. I really don't want to focus on these things, because when you live in another country and other food is naturally available there, you have to adapt. It's exactly like Giorgio Shava, the father of macrobiotics, who drove everybody nuts for 50 years, recommending only obscure Japanese food products, like the Japan was the mecca of the healthy food, and only some uh, daiso radish and umebosi plums and I don't know what, they could heal your cancer. Many people said there must be some equivalent to this in France or in the United States. Yeah, but Giorgio Shava didn't know them, so he had to speak from his experience in his youth and from his things. So this creates sometimes some real funny things when you think that only some Chinese herb or only some Indian vegetable or only some Japanese radish can. Sometimes it may be true that some of them has a chemical component which is super rare and exclusive. That's not always the case. There are always replacements. You can always find replacements and that's very important. Otherwise, you are at the hand of these special shops which are handling Ayurvedic products and herbs from India, and they are going to charge you 20 times the price which those things cost in India. And you are going to pay through the nose because you, at all costs, you want emblic mirobalan. But isn't there something in your country which equates the emblic mirobalans? It does, there is. But for this, you have to understand very well the energetics of plants. You have to consult people who understand very well if this is kapha, pita, vata, if this is rajas, tamas, sattva, if this is earth, water, fire, air, or ether, if what the, the whole energy, if this is yin or yang, to understand clearly this. Some very brave authors in the West have started and are trying to find equivalences, working equivalences for Hindu herbals, for Chinese herbals, it's not always successful because many of them are not very trained in yoga sensitivity so as to feel chakras, to feel energy, to feel effect. And thus it's not easy, but it's an effect which at some point it should be done. So here is, a, of course, long list of other things. And says Geranda, I said the leafy vegetables. And then he stops for a brief conclusion. Pure, sweet, and wholesome. Food should be eaten to fill half of the stomach. This is called mitahara or moderate diet. It must be eaten in harmony with the beings of light. So much said in such a short shloka. Pure, sweet, and wholesome. In Sanskrit, when you use these words, it very much designates food which is sattvic and slightly kapha. This is a thing of which you must be aware. The Indian yogis were crazy about ghee, butter, and generally kapha food. Why? Because whatever your body type is, in India the sun is tropical and scorching most of the time, and it creates an excess of pita. The yogis living naked or half naked, and when there is wind or storm, they would get excess of vata. In Ayurvedic medicine, vata is the worst of the three doshas and the one which produces easiest disease and all the signs of old age. 
And because of all these reasons, in India, Vata and Pitta are not very popular. That's why everybody has noticed and can't explain that they say that even on the Bollywood posters in India, the actors are made a bit greasy. Their skin is shining and they are made, they look more fat than in reality. And they say it's one of the things because in India, fat means rich because you can afford to eat as much as you want. And it's a sign of prosperity if you are a bit fatter than normal. But it's not only that. If you read Indian Ayurveda and modern Ayurvedic teachers suck at this, they falsify that message because it doesn't correspond to the beauty patterns from the West. And exactly as yoga is hijacked and misinterpreted, Ayurveda also is partly. But if you go to the very tradition, you are going to see that many Ayurvedic people prefer a slight excess of kapha. They say with kapha, you are going to feel good in the hot season because you are going to be more cool. With kapha, you are going to live five or ten years extra because your tissues are having a lot of spare proteins, fat, and other things, and you are kind of a, a more vital animal. It's equivalent with the vitality in Muladhara and Zvadhisthana. And that's why, paradoxically, while in the West, people having signs of kapha would be considered unelegant, inelegant, whatever you want to put it, and maybe even unhealthy. In India, that is quite the opposite. It's funny that today, if you read alternative medicine, you are going to find hundreds of sites which say that the modern standards about cholesterol, for example, are totally nuts. That they say your cholesterol can't be higher than 250 or whatever. They say it's completely absurd from the standpoint of traditional medicine. And people say, if I would have my cholesterol lower than 200 or 250, I would consider myself very ill. Actually, the normal cholesterol is much more than modern medicine boasts it is. And I read studies in the last two, three years. Maha is the queen of studies and can tell you way more about those studies, where they are, who did them, and what exactly they say. But I've seen medical studies in the last years where the doctors say, <coughs> sorry, it was not quite the way we said it. Actually, 250 or 70 is not so bad in your cholesterol. It won't produce any major damage in the long run. And actually, it keeps some other things very low in your system, blah, 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 blah. So anyway, uh, when yogis uh, like Geranda say pure, sweet, and wholesome, wholesome is, it, 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 I forgot to write here the Sanskrit word is snigma, and it is a word which is almost like kapha. It's almost like it's, it means sticky. It means something which is like uh, mucus-like. So the pure, sweet, which is one of the typical characteristics of kapha, and wholesome, I prefer to use the word nourishing, like a bit heavy, like potatoes, like avocado, like beans, you know, like something which is a bit heavy. This is wholesome, but it's kapha. This part is actually de designating a bit of a heavier part of the food. So it's a slight tendency, and gurus like Shivananda and like Direnda Brahmachari, they in their books, they go nuts on this. Also, Shivananda and Brahmachari were both of them severely overweight and visibly very kapha. 
but I think in their case they kind of overdid it. These people were living a more luxurious village or city life, and then they added all this crap with ghee and butter and wholesome sweet food and so on, and they kind of pushed it a little bit too far. But don't jump into the extremes. There is a slight hint in the traditional texts of India where 10% extra kapha is considered to be okay, especially when you do yoga. You do a hundred with the Anabandhas, you do Mayurasana, you do Dhanurasana, you do whatever you do, you do a lot of Shirshasana, you burn, 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 you do Trataka, you do, you burn, 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 burn. This will increase your Pitta, it might increase even your Vata. So you need a counterbalance to it, and that's why that counterbalance is always in, in yogic India, a bit extra of Kapha. Although you'd consider, isn't that heavy? It's heavy, but it's giving you fuel. It's giving you a heavy density fuel that you can really use for your things. So pure, sweet, and wholesome. Food should be eaten to fill half of the stomach. That is called mitahara or moderate diet. It is a beautiful concept. Eat until you fill up the stomach to half. How would you know? I don't know. Eat one day until you burst and see how much it was, and then next time eat just half of that. Measure, make some personal measurement. Uh, is it easy? No. I know some people, and sometimes I have been in that frame of mind, where I said, look, rather than you give me a small meal, I prefer to fast. I'm a bit more extreme than that. You know, it's like a small meal is just a teaser. And I don't want to be teased. You know, either you give me a full meal, or if not, I prefer to fast. It's more simple to fast than just to eat a little bit and then to go with your stomach gurgling from there. And it's like, I'm still hungry, you know, I'll eat or not. The yogis were very Spartan from this standpoint. Very, the yogis were very disciplined from this standpoint. And ever since I read this 30 years ago, I have been very admirative of their self-discipline like people with pure mind not ridden by vices not spoiled by lots of abuses in their life people living a disciplined life and not picking up mental garbage and lust and desires and uh, incontrollable desires from the rest of the world people who are in a certain way pure and keeping their distance and keeping their purity so this is a real difficult tapas. If you want, if you can, follow it. When you eat, says Geranda, fill your stomach to half. And this is mitahara. This is the so-called eat with moderation. It must be eaten in harmony with the beings of light called suras. The suras are the, uh, the beings of light, the devas, the gods. And thus as opposite to the titans, to the demons, which are called asuras, the antipode of the gods. And here it's a very cryptical statement. It says when you eat, not only that you have to keep this mitahara discipline, but also you eat in harmony with the beings of light, which means be in harmony with the gods. The least we could say is like don't eat angry, don't eat upset, don't eat stressed out. Don't eat in a miserable state. 
You have to be in harmony with the gods. Don't forget that the gods are also the planets, like Jupiter, Mars, Venus. These are the planets. So there is a concealed double entendre here with astrologically, which simply says, eat at good moments. For example, uh, the Svara Yoga says, eat when you are breathing through the right nostril. So that's a kind of being in harmony with some of these gods, sun and moon, or whatever, the solar and the lunar, and others. Being in harmony with the beings of light, with the suras, um, for example, in early Christianity, there existed the rule, and it was given by the apostles themselves, that if, for example, you live in a community, and if you had a bad, bad fallout quarrel with somebody, it doesn't even matter who was guilty, who started it. The rule was, do not come Sunday to the church to take communion, while people behind you in the community are your enemies. You don't take the, you first go and make peace with your enemies, and when you are in harmony with the gods, then you can go to the priest and get your communion. Like, don't drive angry, don't eat angry, don't, here, Gyaranda is again a master of harmony. He simply says, eat your food with moderation, and eat it in good conditions. The food must be eaten in harmony with the beings of light. There are so many implications from this. Like, for example, when you eat in harmony with the devas, did you offer some of your food to the devas? Because in the old days, people were practicing the spirit of tithing. 10% of what you have must be given to the gods. So did you give in cultish Hindu movements like the Hare Krishnas, before they serve the food, they consecrate the food to Krishna and they take the best part of the food, the first spoonful or two of food, and they put it on a dish and they offer it on the altar to Krishna. And then the leftovers are for the community, are for people. People are never eating the first food. The first food is like given to a king, and the king is Krishna. The first food can be given to the gods, and then you eat. <coughs> so there are many meanings of this, depending of how mystically oriented you are as a person. And uh, it, you don't need to, but I just want to underline for you all the meanings which are hidden in this text. This slight it's more than, it's less than a whole line in a shloka. This sentence is very interesting. So it says, practice mitahara, fill up your stomach only half, and then food must be eaten in harmony with the devas, with the gods. Half the stomach should be thus filled with food, one quarter with water, and one quarter be kept empty for the free movement of air. According to the understanding of Geranda, you need to put some water. People say, don't drink water after the food because you dilute your gastric juices. Yeah, but the food also needs some liquid to be properly emulsified and liquidified in the stomach so that it can be properly digested and passed on. So it's, it's somewhere in between. Geranda approximates this, half of your stomach with food, 
25% of your stomach with water on top of the food and the rest empty because his feeling is that the air must move freely. To those of you who have been here in the first chapter about Kriyas, when I did the Kriyas in chapter 1, or for those of you who did the Vatasara Dauti and the Bahish Krita Dauti in the Agama program, I would like to remind you about those techniques because the yogis claim that by putting air in the stomach, such as burping it, taking air into the stomach and then eliminating it one way or the other, you are actually improving the digestion and you are doing a lot of good things to your Manipura chakra, digestive process, and so on. Here, Geranda doesn't. Geranda says, if you remember Vatasara Dauti, then this one quarter might be for that. But basically, Geranda seems to believe that in your stomach there will be 50% food, 25% water, and 25% air, which are all three components of the digestion. A little bit left. Because now it's coming really quickly, there comes another list of food. He gave the basic one, and he wants to add because that was, was scarce. In the beginning of the yoga practice, again, in the beginning, until you start controlling your vital functions and energy really well, then it won't matter, and you might actually use some of these things. But in the beginning, when you can't control it, and you need to be right in the middle, one must avoid food that is too spicy, for example, if you have done yoga for two years and you discover that your Manipura is a noodle, a boiled noodle, and if you discover that your Manipura is a jellyfish and is almost absent, then you might want to eat tons of chili and ginger and this to increase your inner fire. But that's already the action of a person who is a little bit expert. Like you know yourself, you know the yoga techniques, You've understood star some of your strong parts and some of your weak points. And now even diet can be regulated. But in the beginning, you might be a bit too rash from the very first month of yoga saying, oh, I think I understood. I need a lot of chili. And then you discover that you get some pitta disease in your body. And thus, uh, that is not correct. That's why I insist it's in the beginning of the yoga practice later you have a more free latitude, but in the beginning you have to play by the book, by the rules. In the beginning of the yoga practice, one must avoid food that is too spicy, bitter, acid, salty, or too fried. So too spicy, too bitter, too acid, like too sour. When it's acid, it's very sour. Too salty or too fried, as well as too much curds, yogurt, heavy vegetables, as just a generic name, it doesn't say what heavy vegetables are. But I told you, you know, think about the things which contain lots of proteins and which take a long time to digest, such as beans and others. Wine, so no alcohol. Actually, the word used in Sanskrit in this shloka is madhya, exactly like in Maituna. And madhya meant um, um, a wine which was either made of fermented coconut milk so it was like a coconut liquor and sometimes it was madia was made of honey it was mead the wine of honey and the wine of honey is not having 11 percentage alcohol like regular alk wines do mead is 20 something if i remember or 18 or something it's at least 50 percent stronger 
than regular wine. So it's a liquor, it's not, it's a booze already, not just a wine. So here wine was mentioned in translation. So in the beginning it says avoid, and not too much. It doesn't say not at all, but it says as well as too much of the following. Curds, yogurt, heavy vegetables, wine, palm nuts, or the fruits of the bread tree or panasa. 24, the list continues. Also avoid kulata and masur beans, pandu fruits, squash, called kushmanda in Sanskrit, vegetable stems, gourds, like the bitter gourd and the others, berries, the kola berries, katha bell, the bell leaves, which are one of the vices of India, bilva fruits, and palvasa, palasa leaves. Again, at least five of these, I don't know exactly what they are, and I've never seen probably palasa leaves in my life. But it's just for your information, just to give you a feeling of how precise Geranda was. And he said, you know, when you are a beginner, take it easy, especially with pranayama and all that. It gives you a sensation of how careful this man was. And also avoid the excess of the kadamba fruits, lime and lemon, red bimba fruit, lakucha, onions, but some people translate it here as garlic. And I haven't been able to see that in Sanskrit properly. So some Sanskritologists translate this name as onions, some of it as garlic. And we know that in some Indian environments, both of them are not seen very well. Lotus stalk, kamaranga fruits, piala fruits, asafetida, that is this stinky uh, spice of India, this very strong smelling one, salmali fruits, and taro. Remember, taro was recommended before, but here it says, avoid the excess of, like taro is okay, but with measure. 26, a beginner in yoga must also avoid much traveling. Traveling too much disturbs your vata dosha and it disturbs your mind. The yogis usually spend 30 years in one place. Traveling was not very much a yogic thing. Some babas do it in India, but most of them are not yogis. And these wandering mendicants, these babas, they are sometimes very vata. You can see it on their body and on their uh, system. So the yogis are not in that family. Yaranda said, build yourself a hut with a water tank and a surf. How many of those are going to build? Are you going to move every one month and build another hut with another enclosure and another well? No. You probably spend 10 years in that place. So actually the yogis and Geranda himself doesn't like much traveling. The nomadic lifestyle is not for the yogis. The gypsy lifestyle with a tent going everywhere is not for the yogis. The yogis like stability. It disturbs. I can tell you this subject, I've seen it approached by many yoga teachers, of some of my teachers as well, and all of them were of the same opinion, that too much moving around creates chaos in your mind, as above, so below, as outside, so inside, and it creates too much. You have to stay. Go someplace and stay and do your practice, because there is the tendency that your mental monkey constantly tells you to go somewhere else to go somewhere else, to go somewhere else, that the place is not okay. 
and then those people after they go in 10 places and it's still not okay, they should learn this lesson at least. It's not about going anywhere else. The paradise is where you are. The kingdom of God is where you are. If you cannot find God where you are, how can you find God? And thus, please remember that this is so. One must avoid much traveling. Company of women. As I Then the yogis cannot be women. Yeah, if it's women, probably it would be company of men. It's obviously a pun on the sexual issue. Because if Geranda does not teach sexual continence in this text, and it appears that he was not teaching sexual tantra in his ashram, in his lineage, and then people were supposed to be celibate. And the company of the opposite gender, abundantly, is a sure recipe to disaster. Like as much as you say it won't happen, I can bet with you, if not with you, take the study of some of your friends or acquaintances. Take somebody who goes in a place and says, I'm going to be celibate, I don't care, I don't this, and they stay in the company of people of the opposite gender for six months and see what's happening. Sex is 99% of the time what results from this. Here in Agama, because we are a tantric school and we teach sexual tantric brahmacharya and thus sexual continence, we don't have a problem with the company of the opposite gender because in case you get infatuated for somebody, you can do it without wasting your ojas. And then it won't be a problem for your yoga practice. But Geranda was not on that page and therefore Geranda lists it as the nuisances. One nuisance is moving too much, traveling too much. The second nuisance is the company of women. But Geranda and Chandakapali, they are both of them men. So, of course, they turn. what if it would be an ashram of women, a female yoga lineage? Then they would talk about the company of men. Like exactly like nuns, they stay locked in nunneries, in female monasteries, and they don't allow men in precisely because this company is not good for what they plan to do. So a beginner in yoga, again, a beginner, advanced people might have solved some of these or not, but a beginner in yoga must also avoid much traveling, company of women, and busking too much near fire. The Babas in India are crazy with fires all the time. And actually, Geranda says you stay too much near a fire, it can again disturb your pitta dosha, especially in a tropical climate like India and so on. And Geranda simply says, don't fall too much for this. All the time, all the time, all the time, fire. It's a bit too much, especially for pitta people living in India. So it's funny how he mixes these three, traveling, women, basking near the fire. There is an, there is an alternative translation which I found in just one translation of this text, where the author claims that the word vaknisevana, which is used there in Sanskrit, can also be translated as fire sacrifices or fire ceremonies, which is one of the things driving crazy the Brahmins, the Babas, and some spiritual people in India. Because if they would stand one hour on their head every day, they would have a lot of spiritual effect. 
but because they don't stand on their head and they just poke a stick in the fire all day long, then many of them start falling back on Hindu religious rites and they start relying heavily on fire ceremonies. And fire ceremonies are not yoga. I'm not saying that they have no effect, but they are not yoga. They are at the level of rituals. And yoga considers itself different from rituals. And that's why uh, Geranda says uh, also probably not too much into this fire ceremony culture. Not too much. He doesn't say not at all. It's not forbidden. But he says take it easy with the fire sacrifices. If you are a yogi doing, having a hut in a foreign land and doing pranayama, preparing for pranayama. That's not where you want to go. Uh, bear with me, there are just seven shlokas left and they are pretty quick because they are about food items still. He interrupted the list and now he starts. Already in 26, in the second half, he starts. But, so don't go in traveling company of women and too much near fire, but one can have fresh butter, ghee, fresh butter is fresh butter and ghee is clarified butter. So there are two different brands of butter. Fresh butter, ghee, whole milk, molasses or jaggery, cane sugar, date sugar. All this list is a kapha list from one end to the other. Yeah, All the fresh butter, ghee, whole milk, molasses, cane sugar, date sugar. As I told you, it's the beloved of the yogis. There are other things on the list. But I was surprised to see how many gurus in India, they like these kinds of things, especially when they worked with uh, the physical body a lot. Others who didn't, they didn't. Srila Bhaktivedanta Prabhupada, the man who is the founder of the Hare Krishna movement, when he was in America, they were giving him Indian food and it was fatty and greasy and all the rest. And he constantly asked for chilies and ginger and this because he said, are you trying to kill me with so much fat and so much thing? I need to eat something fiery. So while some people might feel that something fiery will diminish the effect of the oil in the food and others, remember that, but this man, he was not doing physical yoga. So the yogis from India who are doing physical yoga, they felt that when they did a hundred Nauli Kriyas, they burned a lot of kapha. And if you wouldn't have a kapha diet, your body would start going pitta or vata and lose vitality. You'd start going skinny and all that. So there he said it, but one can have fresh butter, ghee, whole milk, molasses, cane sugar, date sugar. And when yogis like uh, Dhirendra Brahmachari, Swami Shivananda, and to a lesser extent, Swami Vivekananda in front of you, they start doing less Hatha Yoga in their lives or not. They started growing up like buffaloes and becoming overweight simply because of this. You are used with Kapha heavy food, but that Kapha heavy food goes together with at least two hours of Hatha Yoga every day. Like you have to burn it by doing Hatha Yoga and all that. So I hope you understood the clear why this Indian dietology, yogic diet thing, seems slightly skewed in this way. It's not because they are ignorant. It's because their lives were lived in a peculiar way. And it continues with a long list of what 
he says, because he says one also can have ripe plantain bananas, and an alternative from a translation says fried bananas, grilled bananas, as some people do in Thailand as well. Coconuts, no, I'm sorry, cocoa nuts, the cocoa grains, pomegranate, anise, and an alternative in translation here is turmeric, because in different Thai parts of India, use the same word for two spices, different in two parts, in those two parts of India. Grapes, lavali fruits, emblic mirobolans, which is called amalaki, juices that are not too sour or bitter. While practicing yoga, 28, while practicing yoga, the yogin may also eat energizing plants. <coughs> energizing plants, such as cardamom, nutmeg, cloves, rose apple, kebulik mirobalans, karitaki called, and palm dates. <coughs> so a little bit of high energy food was also considered okay. Of course, he doesn't say coffee or Red Bull or something like this. He just says natural, <coughs> but plants and food, which is a bit more energizing, more fiery, more dynamic. 29, easily digestible food, nourishing, agreeable. That's again a kapha type. When you say nourishing, agreeable food, that's neither pitta nor vata. Nourishing, agreeable food is kapha, but easily digestible food that sustains the constituents of the body. The word used in Sanskrit is datu, the seven datus from Ayurveda, bones, flesh, fat, blood, lymph, semen, marrow of the bone. So the seven datus, so the food which sustains the constituents of the body. The yogin may eat according to his liking when practicing yoga. So if your food is sustaining the constituents of the body, and it is easily digestible, nourishing, and agreeable food. Of course, all the time, he mentions strictly vegetarian food, lacto-vegetarian. Ovo is already out of it in India. When you've gone to egg, you are out of the traditional Hindu vegetarianism. So they are lacto-vegetarian, and they never go out of those limits. <coughs> the world is a big place. And we've seen spirituality done with other types of diet in other parts of the world. But in India, with their Hatha Yoga, they were lacto-vegetarian, and for them that was good enough. So he says, when you have this kind of nice food, you can eat according to your liking when practicing yoga. I can't even comment, especially that I would like to finish this thing with the food, uh, but just two or three shlokas left. But... Um, the, the idea is that um, food which sustains the constituents of the body. If you are a connoisseur in yoga and Ayurveda, this statement goes very deep. For example, there are people <coughs> who correspond to what uh, Hippocrates and Galen, the ancient Greek doctors, had called the the melancholic temperament. The melancholic temperament produces black bile because that's what melancholy means in Greek. Mela is black and kola is bile. So melancholy is black bile. And the opposite of the melancholic is the sanguine who produces too much blood. The sanguine person 
is a person, and of course you know the collateral meanings which are correct, but the sanguine person, strictly physically speaking, is a person who is in the heart chakra a little bit. His heart chakra produces too much blood, which is rubbish, medically speaking, because it's not the heart which produces the blood, but the Greek doctors thought that the heart produces the blood. And therefore, for example, the sanguine person is a person who is red in their cheeks. They very easily go red in their cheeks, and they risk to die of a heart attack when they drink too much red wine. And they shouldn't drink too much red wine, because red wine, being a red liquid, by analogy and by sympathy, will tend to produce more blood in your body. And it's funny that when people have had an accident and they lost a lot of blood, they are told eat beef steaks, rare beef steaks, and drink red wine. Because actually drinking red wine, even in the Western medicine, is considered mysteriously to regenerate the blood. Why? Because the ancient medicine, including Ayurveda, were visually sympathetic. They simply said, if you eat something which looks like sperm, such as, for example, salty lassi, salt lassi, yogurt with salt, then your body, if you are a man, is going to produce more sperm. Because like corresponds to like. And therefore, a, a melancholic person has no blood, is not sanguine, is the opposite. And therefore, a melancholic person is recommended, even in the Greek medicine, to drink tomato juice, to drink red wine, to basic. This is how you sustain this mysterious sentence, which says agreeable nourishing food that sustains the datus. If you notice that you have too, too little sperm, eat something to, con to amplify your sperm. If you have too much blood, don't eat red liquids. For example, you are a woman and you are two days before your menstruation. Cut off the red wine, cut off the tomato juice, cut off the red um, beet, the red beet juice, anything which closely or nearly looks like blood, like a red fluid. It's, it's very simple. There is a sort of an intuitive, foolproof way. And thus, you can think. No? Like, for example, if you eat something which looks like the brain. Well, what looks like the brain? The brain of an animal. But that was off limits in Hinduism because they were vegetarian. And here is a little thing which looks like the brain. Walnuts. When you open a walnut, it's like you open the skull of somebody. There are two hemispheres wrinkled and with convolutions. That's why traditionally in Ayurveda, they say that walnuts are very good for your brain. Guess what? Modern science can confirm that in a funny way. Walnuts contain iodine, and iodine is super important for your thyroid gland. And if your thyroid gland doesn't have iodine and works badly, you become an idiot. That's the cause of idiocy in children, a bad thyroid gland. And what did the thyroid gland need? It needed iodine. That's why today they put iodine in salt. They give you iodized table salt. They thought that this will uh, compensate for people's lack of iodine. And 
chronic idiocy in the masses and problems with the thyroid. The funny thing is that although everybody eats uh, iodized salt and it's almost a stunt in most countries of the world to find uniodized salt, it's a rarity, it's a rare item in some health shops and sometimes governments are not happy about it and it's a whole story. And you eat iodized salt, but it did not destroy the thyroid problem. Iodized salt has the iodine in such a way that your body cannot absorb it and use it. And therefore, it's useless. And the iodized salt is a real crappy salt. And the experiments of crystallography of Masaru Emoto and others, Abrams and others, uh, Delawar, George Delawar and others, when they have studied uh, water in which you put iodized salt and then they froze it and crystallized it, the crystals of water, ice, and drying it, the patterns of crystallization, they were horrible, awful, disharmonious, really ugly. And that's a parenthesis, but in this way I'm telling to you, in Ayurveda they thought walnuts are good for the brain, yogurt is good for men's testicular sperm production, and uh, tomato juice will be good for people who need more blood in their system. That's the rabbit hole which is opened by this sentence when you said eat nourishing, agreeable food that sustains the datus of the body. Well, first you have to see what datu is not working with you. For example, maybe you have a poor muladhara and your bones are not strong enough and your nails are becoming brittle and frail and ugly looking and your hair cracks and splits <coughs> and it's very vata and then you need bone tissue. And then you should eat something which has the consistence of bone. You have to chew on something which is kapha and very hard. Like, you know, the hardest vegetable that you can find. You know, like you can say even carrots would probably be closer to bones than anything else. So eat these hard roots and so on just to increase your bone density and your kapha structure. Of, that's what is meant here. And I will not go further in this commentary. This is a whole story. And get instructed. Ask your teachers. Ask me in questions and answers. I'm not going to go further with this. The last shloka about food is number 30, with which we conclude tonight. And they say, but a yogin must avoid hard food. And the word is very weird in Sanskrit because it means either food that is very dry, very dried up food, like they would say, uh, fried wheat, parched wheat. They use it in China or, or rice in China. You can fry cereals on a dry piece of metal. You just roast cereals and they become crackly. They become like popcorn a little bit. They become, you know, crumbly and so on and they are very tasty. Still, Geranda says this kind of super dry food and hard, really hard. Or it can mean, says one of the Sanskritologists from uh, the Kaivalyadhamma that has analyzed this text, it can mean also that the food is not well boiled. Again, we are coming to one of the strange uh, conflicts because in modern nutrition, some people say don't boil the vegetables too much because you spoil them and so on. In Chinese medicine, they have ways of cooking vegetables for five hours in a row, boiling them, and they say that the fire gives them chi and the food overcooked 
has some benefits. They don't deny that the raw food has some benefit, but they also say that the overcooked food gets something from the fire. So there is here a bit of a dialogue of which one of them is really good there. You have the slow cookers for rice, in which instead of making rice in 15 minutes, you make it in three hours. And that rice is loaded, they say, in a different way. So anyway, but a yogin must avoid, he concludes, hard food, which means dry or not too well cooked, polluted, and the alternative word is sinful or tamasic. They use a word, I forgot the word in Sanskrit, which means sinful food. And sinful is equivalent with tamasic. It's like the food of the devil, you know. That's the food of the dark side. It's the food of the underworld. It's the So polluted, bad or toxic, putrid food, stale, very hot or very cold, rather room temperature, or too stimulating, like coffee would come in this one, tobacco would come into this one, although it's not a food. No, so like avoid, so Geranda, that's where he draws the line, and he says, he said a lot. Then he wants to say something about other lifestyle things. He has about three more shlokas, and thus he barely reaches to the condition of purifying the nadis. The next thing what we are going to talk about when I do the next satsang is that in the continuation of chapter 5, Geranda is going to say how to purify the nadis. And you are going to see that that's what we do in, uh, in uh, Agama. It's not we did not improvise. These things are old as history in yoga. And then after that, he's finally going to describe pranayama. Like with all these precautions, time, space, location, diet, and a few other things, which, he's go which I'm going to read next week, then finally, and purification of the nadis, then you can do pranayama. So Geranda is actually very cautious and very precise when he teaches pranayama, which is a lesson for all of you. Do not take pranayama lightly. I'm telling you again and again, when you do pranayama, as well as in some of the kundalini yoga mudras, you are playing with dynamite. You are playing with things which are strong. And if you practice a lot, you are going to see how strong they actually are. Of course, the people who only hear about pranayama and they practice pranayama three times in three months because their yoga teacher did it in the class. And actually in the second class where the yoga teacher did it, uh, people were very busy having a potluck and they shirked that class. So they came to do pranayama three times in three months. Then you will never understand really why Geranda says that pranayama is strong. If you will take a tapas to do two hours of pranayama for 60 days, two hours every day, then you are going to understand what Geranda is talking about because only practice can demonstrate these things. Enough for tonight. We will continue next time when we go there. Thank you all for having had patience and staying a bit more. Namaste to all of you. And with this, we have finished the satsang of This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads.